to Luke chapter 1. Today we'll be looking at verses 26 through verse 33. If you wouldn't mind standing for the reading of God's word, appreciate it. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favorite one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you for another opportunity to gather as uh, your people. Thank you for those who are able to gather with us uh, through the human invention of technology and streaming. And we thank you for those at home who are uh, in their homes watching right now and those who are here. And we pray, Father, that you administer to those who are watching and to those who are listening in this room that you would help us to, to know you better. We pray, Father, that the things that we discuss today will have an impact on our hearts. We realize, Lord, that we are not able to accomplish anything without your aid, without your spirit working. And so we do ask, Lord, humbly before you today, that your spirit would move in our hearts and minds, that he would communicate your word to us, Lord, so that we might follow you more faithfully. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. As you know, we're just a few weeks away from the end of the year 2020. And for all of us, and to one degree or another, we have been impacted by the events of this year. Just to call them to mind, we began this year with a worldwide pandemic that affected not only our nation, but the nations around the world and have continues to affect us to this very day. Uh, in efforts earlier this year to avert a health crisis so that the hospitals wouldn't be overrun, uh, our nation did something that, at least in my lifetime, I had never seen before, which was to have a time of shutdown. Inadvertently, that shutdown then led to an economic crisis to which the government sought to uh, deal with or rectify by having a stimulus package that was released to cover those issues. And then sadly, on top of all of that, uh, there was an eruption of racial tensions over various incidents, and there were various responses to those racial incidents and continue to happen to this day as people are divided over the topic of racial injustice. And just to add a little bit more to it, we ended the year with the most pres contentious presidential election. Uh, some newscasters have said that the, this presidential election, although we had great voter turnout, just ultimately reveals that our nation is still deeply divided at its core. 
And so as we come to the end of 2020, there are different responses or different reactions or different thoughts about what 2021 might be like. Some are relieved to know the fact that 2020 is coming to an end. It can't wait for December 31st to hit and for January 1 to come in because we can say goodbye to what happened in 2020. And so they look to 2021 with hope that next year will be a better year than this year. Others are not so convinced that that's the case. They look at 2021 with suspicion and they came into this year with certain expectations and those expectations were dashed against the rocks of reality and they look at 2021 and they're saying to themselves, I'm not so sure that it's going to be any better next year. And then there's some others who, in light of the events of this year and a, a, a propensity to lean towards biblical prophecy or looking towards next year, and they're wondering after looking at the events of this year, are we on the verge of the end of the end of days? It's just, just the precursor to what is yet to unfold to become what some have referred to as the Great Tribulation. And are we the last generations to see the world as it is? And so they are somewhat concerned. And the reality is, what will 2021 be like? No one really knows. And so as Christians, how can we approach 2021 with a sense of peace if there is a chance that things could either remain the same or be something much worse than we expected or experienced this year. Well, this weekend we began our Advent sermon series as you saw the video that introduced our service. And as we began to set our hearts and minds to think about the first arrival of Jesus Christ, uh, we're going to be taking a different approach this year. So in past years, we've often tried to focus on the human actors, those human agents who play some role in the story that surrounded the birth and the coming of Jesus Christ. This year, we're going to put our focus not on humans, but on God. And our plan is to show you how these familiar events that you know probably by heart and have memorized, how they point us to, to some realities about who God is. And we hope by looking at these realities of God, uh, by looking at these constants, you can enter 2021 with a sense of peace, even though the world around you may be troubled. And so we've given a subtitle to our sermon series. We call it, uh, we've said, you can be still because God is still. And by the statement, we intend to communicate to you in our hope that you can enter this new year with that calmness of mind and serenity of spirit because God does not change. And so in the upcoming weeks, we hope to show you four ways that God has not changed from the Christmas narratives. But let me give you those four ways right up front. And that would be this, that God is still sovereign. God is still supreme. God is still savior and God is still the all-sufficient one. So you can be still because God is still. This week we're looking at the first of those which is sovereignty. And what is the sovereignty of God using that theological term? Well, when we speak about the sovereignty of God, we are referring to his kingly rule. It's a reality that we see running from the very first page of the Bible in Genesis 1 to the very last page of the Bible in Revelation chapter 22. And it's the Old Testament writers who shape our view of God as king. 
And so what I want to do is simply walk you through the scriptures today to help us see how the Bible writers, those authors of scripture, communicated to us about God's divine sovereignty because we believe the Bible is divine revelation. Now, as we would seek to look for scriptures, they're so numerous that we can't cover them all. So I want to select a few that paints the picture for us so that we can get a, a good taste of what the scripture is indicating about God and his kingship as the primary view about who God is in relationship to his creation and those who are under him as his created beings. Well, first of all, we have passages that directly refer to God as king. And here I'm talking about the God of Israel, Yahweh, as he revealed himself. Moses in his deathbed blessing refers to God as he reflects on what happened in Israel's history. This is what he said. Thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun when the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. Here, Moses pictures God as taking up the role of leadership of the nation in a kingly position of this newly formed nation that God has just delivered and formed out of a former slaves who had been slaves in Egypt that he had delivered. And Moses sees him as ultimately the leader and king of the nation. God confirms this view of himself, that this is the right view, when the people had wanted to, to have someone that they could see, someone like them, like the other nations around them. When they wanted a human king, God refers to himself in this way. This is what he said to the prophet Samuel. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And you might think that, well, maybe God had abdicated his role as king, but as we go on many years later and we get to the prophet Malachi, we find out that God did not abdicate his role. He just appointed a vassal, that is, a king who serves a greater king. And so he did that through the Davidic monarchy to serve as his agent on earth to fulfill his, his role. But God remained king of Israel. And he had a problem when the people did not treat him with the respect that was due to him. This is what he said to the prophet Malachi. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemish. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And it's uh, this role, this picture of God, the primary view of God as king that the psalmists celebrate. We see that in Psalm 47, Psalm 93, Psalms 95 through 99. To give you a taste of that, let me quote a little bit from Psalm 47. This is what the writer said. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with the psalm. God reigns over the nation, and God sits on his holy throne. The psalmist celebrates this idea of God's kingly rule, but not just over Israel, but over all the nations of the world, because he made them. And so the psalmist goes on to say, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Not only do we have direct references to God as king to form our perception of him and what role he plays in relationship to the nation and all nations and to everything that is created, we also get pictures of how God uh, acts in his kingly authority and what falls under his kingly authority. 
When we come to Genesis chapter 1, the entire passage screams that God is king as he creates and orders the world as a temple for him to dwell in. And especially when he delegates authority to the sun, the moon, and ultimately to humanity to work as his vassals to manage the creation on earth that he has set aside. Remember that familiar passage when God said in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the flock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. See, his kingly rule uh, shows that he has authority over others and he sometimes shares that authority with others, which points to his ultimate rule. But not only does he do that, but he also has angels at his charge to which he dispatches to do his will, which points to his kingly authority. One of the psalmists puts these two concepts together when the psalmist writes, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. And as king, the, the writers, the, the understanders, the Old Testament prophets understood that God is king because uh, he made everything and that thus part of his kingly authority involves the fact that he has the right of ownership of everything. And so the psalmist put it this way, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded upon the seas and established it. And because God is king and because he owns everything, then God operates with total freedom. The psalmist put it this way, for I know that the Lord is great and that our God is Lord above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and in the seas and all deeps. One of the ways we see that God operates in his freedom to do this is that he has the right to choose any of the servants he has from among them who will do certain tasks and who will do other things. We see an example of this when God rejects Saul and positions David to be the king of Israel. He said this to Samuel. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. God has the right to choose who will do what in his kingdom. Additionally, we might consider the lives of a few others to get some idea about the realm of God's kingly authority. When we consider the life of Job, Job chapters 1 and 2, we see that part of God's kingly authority covers any tests that we face in life. God has the right to choose what tests we will face. From reviewing the lives of Ahab and Hezekiah, we also find that God has the right to determine when and how long we will live and occupy space on planet Earth. He gets to determine the number of our days and when those days will come an end, and it's under his kingly authority to decide whether or not he wants to extend our time on Earth. And lastly, from Proverbs 16, we see that even the plans that we make that we want to see happen in the world fall under God's kingly authority. We may plan the way in which we want to take, but ultimately it's God who determines whether or not those plans will come to fruition as part of his kingly authority. Now, you might wonder what kind of rule does God have, and the psalmist even reflect on that when the psalmist writes, 
The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. The Bible writers unequivocally want us to know that God is king. God is the sovereign. So let me sum up what we've seen thus far from the biblical writers. The authors of the Bibles want us to understand God primarily as a great king. Not only the king of Israel, but the king over all the nations and everything that he's created, which is everything. And as king, he has the rights over everything and every being that exists. God views himself as king, and he expects to be treated with that dignity. In addition, we saw that God always acts with royal authority, and he acts with total freedom. He dispatches heavenly messengers just to do his will and to serve his bidding. And he selects humans from among his subjects to do various tasks to, to accomplish his purposes in the world. God does not have, a, get to have to give an answer to anyone for any decision that he's made. He occupies the highest place of authority that exists, and there is nothing that falls outside of his kingly authority. God rules over all. And for some of the scriptures that I did not have time to share, we see that as sovereign, God comes and acts as supreme judge, savior, and all-sufficient one. And it's with those things in mind that we come to the familiar Christmas narrative and we get to see with those things in mind how what happens in the Christmas story ultimately points us back to the reality that God is the sovereign over the entire universe. Let me show you that from the text. Come back with, to me with Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through verse 33. And I believe there are three clear examples that point us to the reality that God is king. We start off at verse 26. We notice the opening words of the verse. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. What we see here is the dispatching of a heavenly messenger to communicate a message on God's behalf to a selected servant. And this reminds us of what we already know from the Old Testament, that part of the fact of that an angel is dispatched, a powerful messenger, points to the fact that God has a kingling rule. In addition to that, we come to the next verse, verse 30, and we see something there that reminds us as well that God is king. And the angel said to her, Mary, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So there are many women that have lived in history. And of all the women who have ever lived in history or ever will live in history, God selected this one woman to serve as the mother of the Messiah which points us back to the fact that God is king because he has the right to choose whoever he wants to do whatever task he wants. And so by him selecting Mary, and no one can question that selection, ultimately it lets us know that God is the sovereign and he views himself that way and acts in that way. Which brings us to the third thing in the text, verses 32 and verse 33. The angel goes on to communicate, speaking of the child, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom and of his kingdom, there will be no end. So here we see uh, by divine messenger, 
that God has decided to appoint a new vassal to rule the world. This vassal human king will be Jesus. Just as he had given the world over to Adam to rule and reign over it, now he has given the rule of the world over to Jesus Christ. And in light of that fact that he delegates out a vassal king points to the reality that he still remains the supreme king over all. We see the, the writer of John uh, show us that this is the, the idea that has happened as Jesus is refers to Jesus in the opening of Revelations. We find these words that this is the position that Jesus ultimately occupies. And John writes in the opening words to the churches, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. God is king and has appointed as his vassal human king to rule his creation for him, Jesus. He is the new Adam. See, the entire Christmas story rests upon the truth and the reality that God is the sovereign one who rules over the affairs of humanity. And he has shown that throughout numerous examples in history. And as of being king, he has the right to interrupt the human realm, the normal flow of human activity at any point he wants, to do whatever he wants. No one can stop him. Humans have tried in the past and they always fail because everything falls under God's rule and under his authority. Now before we move on, there's one other aspect of God's sovereignty that I want to highlight, which is God's providence. John Piper describes God's providence as his wise and purposeful sovereignty. Wayne Grudem goes on to indicate that God as king directs all things to achieve the purposes as we see Paul referring to in chapter, I'm sorry, in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. To show you this, I need to go back about 700 years before the birth of Christ to the prophet Micah who penned these words. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, when we came to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, we're given some biographical information about Mary. We're told at least two main things about Mary. One, we're told where she resides and lives, the town of Nazareth. And we're told that she's in a relationship uh, that is going to lead to marriage. She's betrothed to a man named Joseph, who happens to be of the house of David. But in light of what Micah has written here, we realize that Mary's living in the wrong place if she's going to be the mother of the Messiah. How is God going to get Mary, who's living and has her family and her connections in Nazareth, to go south to Bethlehem? How is God going to accomplish that? Now, as we read the text of Luke, we might expect, because of what has already transpired before and what transpires afterwards, that God would direct her by angelic messenger. He had done that with Zechariah. He had shown up in the temple unexpectedly and told him that he was going to have a child and what to name that child and what this child was going to do. And here with Mary, he has directed her and told her that she was going to have a baby, and God had selected her for that. And now you might expect that God would again, because it had been some months since Gabriel had shown up, he would show up again, and Gabriel would say, hey, you need to move from Nazareth to Bethlehem because the prophet Micah said that. Why don't you just travel on down there? But that's not what we find in the text at all. We find something very different happening, very human happening. 
And Luke records for us the narrative of what happens in Luke chapter 2. Let me share those verses with you. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor over Syria or of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for the child, for her to give birth. Sorry. So as we see, and we've looked at some stories in the past, like Joseph in Genesis and what happened with him and the story of Ruth, we realize that God has the ability to use human decisions, and in this case, the decision of a government official, the ruling government official at the time, king, to achieve his purposes, although we don't see God's hand actively from what we know doing that. See, I don't think that Caesar, when he set out to have this registration, he enacted this government policy, most likely for the purposes of taxation, that he was thinking to himself, you know what, I would like to help God get his job done. I think he was just looking out for his own interests and for the interests of Rome and for his empire, and he wanted to have the people taxed, and this was the best way to do it. But that purpose that he did served God's purposes. See, many times we don't see God working, but the result of what happens because of what we know from Scripture is that God, once we see it play out, that God was at work behind the scenes. And that's what gives us confidence. So why is God's sovereignty to be a source of peace in a troubled world for us? The Christmas narrative, I believe, gives us two reasons for that. The first reason is that God is the all-powerful king. Notice the response that Mary gives, I'm sorry, that the angel gives to Mary about the question that she asked. Now, Mary is confronted with the reality about how the human world works, of which she's familiar. She understands human biology and how God has ordered the world up until this point. And she realizes that what the angel is saying is a violation of the normal operation of the world, or at least uh, God is going to do something different than he normally does because he has the right to do that. And so she asks, in light of her human understanding of how things work, how is it possible in light of what God wants to do, things can play out in the way that you're saying? And notice what the angel says in verse 37 to her. For nothing will be impossible with God. Now, God has already communicated this in the Old Testament. He told this to Moses, but he, the angel reiterates it for Mary. And she would have known this from the scriptures, that God does not have any limits. There's nothing that God wants to do, desires to do, that he cannot do. Now, I was reminded of this fact as I reflected on the events of this year. I thought about our government the most powerful government in the world, and it's extremely well-resourced. We live probably in the richest nation that has ever existed in history. And yet, as I consider the events of this year, the coronavirus, this worldwide pandemic, the economic crisis, the racial tensions, the hurricanes that came, I realize that even our government, as strong and powerful as it is, has limitations. For we sought to eradicate these things, and yet we've not been able to bring an end to them. That's no criticism of the government. Leadership is hard. But it does point to this fact that God is not limited. 
Genesis 1 and the ministry of Jesus remind us of this. Let me give you a few of those examples. In the ministry of Jesus, as we see him reflecting the very character, nature, and power of God, we realize that God does not have any limits. When it came to dealing with sicknesses and illnesses that plague humanity, he simply spoke a word, and it was dealt with. Call to mind the centurion's servant. He asked for Jesus to heal his servant. Jesus didn't even have to go. He simply said it, and it was done. He has power over death. Remember Lazarus, how long he had been dead? Four days. Jesus simply called, and that which was dead, that which had deteriorated, reversed the process, and he came back to life and walked out of the grave. He has the ability to provide for the needs of people out of what would seem to be insufficient means. Remember what Jesus did with the 4,000 and the 5,000 and how he fed them with starting off with very little but ended up with much? He can do that. He has power over the elements and of the world. Simply think back to Jesus on the boat and how there were raging waves and there were storm surges and he simply spoke a word, peace be still. And all of the world ceased its raging and calmed itself down. See, there's nothing in the world that you or I will ever encounter in life or even past this life that God does not have the power to address if he so wills it because he's the all-powerful king. But there's a second thing in the text of why we can have confidence in God's sovereignty is because God is a good king. And the Christmas story demonstrates that for us by contrasting God's kingly rule with a human's kingly rule and how they execute those rules. In the narrative that Matthew gives for us, he reminds us of the events that happened surrounding those foreign visitors who came in to seek out this king who was born in Israel. And how the king who was in position and power responded to that. And how King Herod used his authority in light of this fact of what he knew about God's promised Messiah. Let's look at the text with me, Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 13. Now when, the angel had, um, now when they had departed, that being the wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there till, until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Notice what happens in the checks between the contrast of God as king and Herod as king. Herod, Herod sends out and has his servants, his armed officials, go out into a village and murder innocent babies, people's sons, in order to save his power and position as king. But when we come to Luke chapter 1, in light of John chapter 3, and the other scriptures that surround it, we see a very different king in God. Instead of taking the lives of son, God gives the life of his own son 
so that he might give his life to save unworthy sinners. The life of Joseph that we've been studying and the life of Jesus remind us that God's purposes are always good because God is good. When we look at human history, we find that there is a theme that runs through of human kings. They always fail us. And in some way, they're always corrupted. And even the good ones do bad things. And the reason we can have confidence in God is because although our government leaders may not always have the best of intentions, the one who is the sovereign over all does always have good intentions. Now, what might the sovereignty of God imply for us? Well, I think there are a number of things, but I'll cover three. One, the psalmists have already led us to it, and I've read it for you that it ought to elicit praise from the people of God that he is king over all. As we consider the coronavirus, as we consider the economic crisis this year, the racial tensions, the presidential election, the weather, the hurricanes that have happened, we must remember that there is nothing that falls outside of God's kingly authority. Which leads me to the second thing. Because everything is under God's kingly authority, we realize that God uses various things in the human world to achieve his purposes. Like Caesar's decree for registration, many people's lives were affected. And I, I could imagine that there was some husband, some wife somewhere who was asking the question, come on here, Lydia, let's go. You know, we got to make it back home to the hometown because, you know, Caesar wants us to go. And I don't know why Caesar wants us to move, but we got to go back so we can pay these taxes and be registered and all that. And he was probably complaining about it, not sure about why things were happening, why he was having to move. And in the midst of him and all the other people and their families moving around, in the midst of all that, they didn't know what was going on, but God was in the process of initiating the plan to save the entire world. Just because we don't know what God is doing with the things that are happening in our world around us does not mean that God is not doing anything. And whatever God is doing, it's good. And so we can face 2021 because we serve the king and who holds the entire world in his hands. So there's something that's concerning you that frightens you about entering 2021 in light of what you've experienced this year. Speak to the king. He's concerned about you. The last thing I think that we see from the text comes in Mary's response to the angel's message. When after hearing this astounding, earth-changing, life-changing news, Mary responds with a humble acceptance of God's call on her life, although she knew that it would cost her personally. She knew that she wouldn't be able to go around to everyone and explain that this pregnancy had been a divine message from an angel, that God was doing something new in history that had never been done before. She just knew she would have to bear the shame and the stigma of being unfaithful, even though she had been faithful for the rest of her life. And she was willing to accept that because God had called her to serve in this way. In a similar way, we have been, as the scripture lays out, been called to fulfill a role by God as well. The apostles speak to this, and they're very clear about this. If you've experienced salvation, then God has called you to the role of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And because God has called you, then it is, uh, behooves you to, under his kingly authority, accept the role that God has for you. And as Paul said to the Philippian church, to live a life worthy of being called a disciple of Jesus Christ. You, like Mary, have been called a role, and you need to humbly accept that and live that out in your life. 
As we come to the conclusion, I would say this, as we look towards the future, that the disciples' ultimate hope rests not in the government rulers or governments of this world to make our lives better. The believer's ultimate hope rests in one fact, that Jesus is going to return. Paul said as much when he wrote, and he said these words, For by, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce all ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-control, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. See, the believer ought to be in prayer asking for that day to come. The hope of the believer's heart ought to long for that day to come when God will show up and reveal his full rule over the world and exercise that right through the kingship of Jesus. There is a day coming when Jesus will appear, and he will appear in great glory with his mighty angels and flaming fire to rule over this world, and he will in that day bring an end to all viruses. He will bring an end to all economic crisis. He will end all racial tensions and injustices in this world, and he will bring an end to all presidential elections and other government rulers, and he will end every effect of curse upon this world. See, King Jesus is our hope for a better future, not the passing of a day on the calendar. That's what we're looking for is for Jesus to come back, and that's why we entitled this series and said to you, you can be still because God is still. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, and we pray, Father, that we would rest in calmness of spirit, not because the earth has made another revolution around the sun, but because the sun is coming in whom we place all of our trust. We can rest in the fact that, God, you remain the same and do not change in a world that changes all the time. And because of your consistency, because you are constant, we have hope that in spite of what we are going to face, we don't know what it is. We can trust in your character, that you are good, you are all-powerful, and you are king over all. And when we feel like the world has treated us unfairly, we have a sovereign to whom we can go that has control over everything, who can hear our case and will hear us plead it to him who is concerned about our welfare in this world. And we give thanks to you. So we enter 2021, Lord, as we close out 2020 with confidence in you as the great king, the sovereign over all the earth. We give praise to your great name. In Jesus we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We'll sing our final song.